Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. Point of view is everything in story. It tells us who the hero is, who the villain is, what to root for. It feels like there's been a building chorus of voices admonishing us to wait, listen, consider the story from another side. From movies like Joker, to books like Circe by Madeline Miller, to TV shows like Cobra Kai, we're looking at stories through eyes that belong to someone we were told was not the hero. We're finding new empathy, which, I'm sure you've seen, is something we need more of in the world right now. There's an African saying, until the lion learns to write, the story of the hunt will be written by the hunter. Filmmaker Perez Owino asks, what if we're the lion? Today, we talk about learning to speak with audacity, the realization that we are here as the continuation of someone else's dream, and the nuts and bolts of what it takes to market a film. A warning, there is a spoiler for I May Destroy You about 39 minutes in. Well, so I was really excited to speak with you because we knew each other back at Paramount. Yeah. Um, which I left in 2005, I think. Yeah. And you, you were doing, like, you were starting to do some, like, one-woman shows, and you had yeah. some stuff, and I was like, she's doing stuff. And then I went over here, and you went over there, and we just kind of, like, lost touch. Yeah, we went, we went, um, we went our separate ways, and then I came back to Paramount after some time uh, to work in creative advertising and marketing, Oh. Two years, which was like a blessing. Because if you're going to be any kind of storytelling, you're going to be any kind of person in this business, you have to actually understand the business. And yes. there's no better place to do that than advertising and marketing. Wow. I mean, you, you're in the heart of the beast. Yeah. You see what, what it takes. So what did you learn? That's fascinating. Like well, what? I can't, the first thing that I learned is you can do your passion project all damn day, but it's all about keeping the lights on. And the electric bills, the electric bills paid and the rent paid. Period. Not just yours. You have to figure out a studio has how many employees, how many structures. Everybody needs you. You don't want to be the reason people get laid off. Mm -hmm. So as much as we love, oh, this is a fashion project. It's gonna be great. Oh, we'll go up to that's great. That's great. But in but in your back, in your bag over there, you better have something that um, give people the confidence that they can keep their lights on. Okay. So yeah, people forget the business aspect of it. Mm -hmm. That there are people here who this is their, their you're there having your wonderful imagination moment, but you're also surrounded by people who are yeah. having day jobs. Yeah. The insurance is attached to working at the studio. Like, that, like that's the reality of it. That not everybody's in the playground with you, boo. Not everybody is. You know what I mean? Not everybody's no. in the land with you. It's a really good, it's a really good thing to think about. And like, yeah. you know, I really encourage everyone to always be super creative and think outside the box. And like when I'm doing feedback on scripts, I do have a section at the bottom that says commercial potential. Yeah. It's just like, you do need to think about this stuff and think about what is a marketing person. Yeah. What are they going to dig into? How are they going to market this? Who are they going to see as the audience for this? Yeah. That they can get excited and get as passionate about it as you are. Yeah. And by all means, right? Look, I have two tiers of work that I do. And I literally write them here on my wall. One section says legacy. One section says entertainment. Very clear. 
what pieces of work am I doing that I know ain't nobody gonna make a cent from this, but my God, we're going to feel good. And what other projects are like, this is going to have to fund this. Yeah. You just have to be very clear. Yeah. It's not personal. Yeah. It's, and that's, and that was one of the most fundamental things for me was, because after you've sat in a room with a movie, because what we needed to do, what we had to do is get the film before it's, you know, once they've got a cut that's somewhat decent. And we're watching this movie and we have to sit there and figure out how are we going to make this movie make money? Mm-hmm. So help us. Basically. Yeah. Help us. Yeah. Who's it. it for? And people are always like, it's for everyone. I'm like, but but it isn't. Who is it for? Who's going to be like, I gotta go watch that? Yeah. Kids, that's a no-brainer. Kids are like, I gotta go. So kids come, there's a parent's going to come attached. That's that's yeah. a, it's the dramas, it's the things that go during the Oscar season and whatever. That's the reason why if you've seen this, this upswing of the more happy ending a movie, the more likely you are to win best picture because it's about, you know, come on, let's, let's get the human race feeling like we can do this. You know, it was, if you have to think, we went from 12 Years a Slave, we went into Moonlight, we went into uh, Green Book. I have my own thoughts about Green Book, but I was so excited when Moonlight won, you have no idea. Oh, yes. Yes. You have no idea. Like, I just was like, and then just the way they wanted me, and a lot of people are like, oh, it was, no, no, no. I'm like, visually watching the transition to me, I felt like that was just done by the gods. Like, mm-hmm. watch this transition about what mm-hmm. happened in entertainment. And for me, it was, it was brilliant. But the rest of the key thing that I learned was what it takes to market, how really hard your advertising and your PR people work. It's really because those are salesmen. They have to sell it. It's not like just because it has a star on it. That it's, it's, it's a lot of hard work. This, I mean, I had so much respect by the time I was done for what these people do. I mean, we would leave the office at 11, 10, 9, 10, 11 p.m. We've been there all day. We don't leave for lunch. We're eating lunch in there. We're eating dinner in there. And that's for the big, and that is like, we're doing a big title like Transformers. Now you give us right. a smaller picture. Now we're just there all day and all night, you know, because it's like, yeah. how do we get people to come and see this? Because we also understand what it means for everybody behind that. If this fails, you might have layoffs in a different, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That real, there's a real consequence to everything that we do on the creative side. I mean, I was working with Jeff, with Josh Greenstein, Peter Janis Colley. I mean, I had a great team of hardworking people and they put everything behind that so was I, was I was surprised at some of the movies they were able to open because mm. I'd watch a movie and I'd be like we can't open this and then it would open and I'd be like it's How? and sometimes like Peter Jenner Scully was working on this we were working on Star Wars this was the first Star Wars ever the first Star Wars that was going to launch the entire franchise and I remember Peter was being in his office until 11 12 1 2 in the morning and all we needed was the sound cue. That entire trailer was made by the sound cue. Wow. And it was just finding the music that, then we found the music and it was like, boom, it just opened. And we're like, oh my God, this is good. It was a sound cue. Yeah. Oh, that's Detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Like I wish every filmmaker would have an opinion. If I, if I had anything to tell any filmmaker, they're like, I need a day job. I tell them, find a day job in anything that has to do with advertising, marketing, and publicity of cinema. You'll understand the business you're in. 
that is that is like fascinating and really good advice yeah, yeah. And it's just interesting, like uh, the one thing example that comes to mind, this is now years ago, but Muriel's wedding, a little yeah. Australian, not like dark, it's dark. And like, it was marketed as a comedy. And I remember thinking like, well, what are they doing? It's not a comedy, but you know, like you could see what somebody went, well, this will what we'll get butts in seats. And yeah, you find what makes it funny. You pick the funny heartfelt moments and you throw it in there. And then we're like, oh my god, this is fun! And then you go in like, well, that was not funny, but I like the girl. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then now people go like, you know what? It's not a comedy, but you like it. All yes. you need is enough seats with mouths to go chatter. Yes, that's all you need. And it's not. It's it takes a lot of people to do that. Yes. Really well, and that also goes back. to That's why one of the reasons Moonlight was so special because it yeah. was such an unusual film. Yeah. And you could see it, it could have gone wrong in a million different places along the journey from development through production and somehow. Yeah. Moonlight was an interesting one because I don't, I do. What's interesting about Moonlight, I will not tell the company that I was working for. The script passed through somebody's desk that I know and they passed on it. And then it ended up where it ended up. And, uh, and you know, it happens to everybody. Yeah. And, I'm sure it was a risky script. I mean, it looked like a, how are we going to market this? Like, it's it's a risk. I read the screenplay. I don't have the screenplay. It's such an easy read. Um, but I'm glad somebody picked it up and did it. Because what we ended up seeing, what I love about Moonlight was Moonlight, to me, gave us an adult male in a way that you've not seen an adult male before, in a very vulnerable way. He was yeah. very... He looked threatening, but that was such a, a vulnerable and delicate human being. I love that. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, finally I'm seeing the kind of men that I know. Mm. Just this gentleman who are just vulnerable, who just want to be loved. It's just, it was so, like, I remember watching it and at the end. The, what was interesting is I was seeing it at the end, I kept saying, don't, don't wrap it up with a bow. Mm -hmm. just leave me in the longing and he did and I was like yeah. oh this is brilliant yeah oh god I love that movie yeah well it's like somebody who finally read the script and saw this this nuanced depth human yeah. yes story. and seeing it too it's yeah. also very uh very insightful because you know and what I love about Moonlight because usually what I do when I study screenplays I like to study screenplay and go read the script then watch the movie and then with the script while I watch the movie uh -huh. and see who is really pa paper to screen. Yeah. What percentage of it is changed and what percentage of it is not. And Moonlight was really beautiful because majority of Moonlight, what you see on the screen is what's on the page. And some movies, you know, make a lot of tweets and edits and whatever. And I like to go to the, like, you know, the raw draft, not the one that's the, the book that you get at Burns and Noble. Mm. You get the PDF version so that you... You see how a, a, uh, how a writer writes and how a director then lifts it off the page mm -hmm. on the screen. It's a beautiful experience. Fascinating. But anyway, yeah. that, no, that's actually a wonderful exercise. I've, I have oh, not, I I've not got back, gone back and held the script while watching the film. Oh, I love doing that. I love doing that. I, the last one I did, and I don't know if I had the right version of the script, but I love the movie Hostiles. Now, there's a movie that I don't know if it was marketed correctly. Mm. 
I love hostiles. And I think it's because they marketed it as a Western and not as a love story. Mm-hmm. Hostiles is a love story to me. Ah. I mean, I still want to meet Scott, the director, because I want to sit this man down and tell him and ask him, how in the hell did you come up with the last shot on this film? Uh, it is like ask my, or like my boyfriend would tell you. Sometimes I'll put hostiles on and I'll fast forward and I wait to the the last sequence and I just sit and I just watch and go. Oh, <laughs> man. When you see things that you you want, you're like, I wish I was that brilliant. That yeah. oh, but you have to watch the whole movie for that payoff. Mm. Well, that to me is when a when a filmmaker does something or a writer does something that I'm like, oh, I couldn't do that. Like, I would never have thought to do that. That's when yeah. I'm just in awe. Yeah, like, who isn't mad about Breaking Bad? Like, damn it! Ugh. That, I have my, like, I have a stack of scripts that every time I feel good about myself, I read them to remind me that excellence is still above me. Usual Suspect, The Sixth Sense. Ugh. God, a yeah. beautiful mind. Mm-hmm. I have Moonlight. Uh, what's that on? I have a stack of them. They're all, like, I literally, like, will have, I have, a, like, a box right here. <laughs> By my desk, that I usually hold on. Oh my goodness! These are my. She's got an entire entire bin. Oh yeah, there's a TVs. Oh, of course, everything Darren Aronofsky. Rest record for a dream. A few mm. men, which Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, come on. The six yeah. days, I mean, I love. I just love reading other people's material. It's just well, and there's something there's timeless about good storytelling. Oh my god. Have you read the script for Nightcrawler? No. No slug lines. Dude. What? Dude, that script, you read it and you're just like, you know, you read some stuff and you're like, dude, this is so good. Like, I could just read the screenplay. Yeah. Well, I love that. There's like, yeah. you know, there's so many rules. And then when you get someone who breaks them. Yeah. You can tell when someone really knows what they're doing and breaking them on purpose or breaking them because they just don't know any better. Yeah, and and you're right. But he, she just... I wanted to start at the beginning. Like, take me back to when you were a little kid. <laughs> yes. what, like, what was your, what was your, what were your expectations? What did you want for your life? And did your family, like, were they down with you being an artist? Or were they no. like, you want to do what? Yeah, No. Because uh, I grew, you know, I grew up in Kenya. So, um, and uh, in Kenya, and and I'm I'm the Luwa, I'm part of the Luwa tribe now. My my group of people have high expectations mm. when it comes to their kids, but most importantly, they want you to be somebody that gets some kind of a title. So you have mm. to be engineer, or you have to be doctor, mm. or you have to be attorney. You have to because they like to call their kids like my father. People don't call him Frank, which is his name. They call him engineer. Wow. So they call, they tend to call people based on your accomplishment. I see. Uh, so like they'll tell me, oh, your doctor's, your Dr. Yomino's niece, you know, so like everybody in my family has. So there was this idea that you always had to, A, first of all, one up your parents and get some kind of title, you know, because they say, you know, if you're standing on my shoulders, you got to be higher. Yeah. You can't be standing on my shoulders and be like the same level as me. That's weird. And so when I, I knew really, really young, really young, that I was going to be a storyteller. I knew that. Uh, it was not something my parents really celebrated that much. They really wanted me to be an attorney. So I'd be good at it. 
And um, so there was this wrestling within me of what is it that I'm supposed to do. So when I got the opportunity to come to the United States to study, uh, I studied because I came on scholarships. So I made sure I got two scholarships. I came to the United States and I was studying social change and development, heading into law school, so just like my pre-law degree. And then when I got here, I found, accidentally found my way to the theater department of my university, which is University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, yay Phoenix. And I accidentally auditioned. You just stumbled in and, and happened to have a monologue prepared. It's fine. And I accidentally got it. And I figured out that if I didn't want my father to know what was going on, I had to make sure I was on scholarship. Oh my God. So I did three years worth of scholarship and my father kept asking me, well, what's taking so long? You should have graduated by now. I was like, no, I'm doing an extension. But I was doing two majors. Yeah. So I didn't tell him until the day I was graduating. Oh my God. That I had two majors. And I was like, okay, I'm done now. So I graduated in social and development. At so the last one, I just kind of like... <laughs> Slipped in there. Theater. How'd that go over? He was like, well, you're a grown-ass woman. I said, you do what you want to do. And then, of course, I hitched a ride and I came to L.A. And um, I would not recommend that because I had only $10. (laughs) Not smart. But But that's a classic story, right? Like aspiring starlet shows up in L.A. with $10 in her pocket. and I'm going to conquer this town. Well, there's 18 million people. Wait, what? 18. Oh, wow. Do you know any one of these 18 million people? No. Ooh, it's going to be tough for you. So... um, (laughs) That, I then started to figure out what is the best way to, so I became a temp. And that's how I ended up at Paramount Studios. That, me too. That's what yeah. I, exactly the same thing. So I was like, I got to get my way into the studio somehow. But for some reason, I could never end up in production. I mean, you were in production side. I couldn't. No, no. I was, in, I was in international. home entertainment, international. Yes. You I could never, I was always trying to get over to creative or production too. And I could never do it either. It's hard. But I also realized why it's kind of hard to get into creative. Because everyone wants to be there. It's not even that. It's so it's so close knit, mm. and it's all. And one of the things that they do, which I really hope they, I really wish they would stop doing, because I think it bars a lot of really creative people from getting into that space. Is there's a lot of Ivy League people mm. get in? Oh, who went to Princeton? Who went to Stanford? Who went to USC? But I'm like, look. Cal State Long Beach is also graduating some really nifty people, but there's no yeah. reason why they shouldn't come in because they didn't go to Penn State. Yeah. So you also have that kind of cliquish, really, really weird niche of people that constantly are getting into those spaces and other kids are not being allowed into those spaces. And that's why I begin to get the issue of, well, it's not racially diverse, but of course not, because it's Berkeley yeah. and Yale and Harvard. That's all that you're getting into those rooms. Yeah. It's like, it's just a microcosm of everything else in this country where it's like the power and elite. It, it, it really is. And so you want, you'd hope that if somebody gets in there who's a person of color, that they would advocate to have someone else, so that it's not just them. And you just kind of keep trying to push other people in. So, yeah. And then, um, of course, there was that. Then I met you. Then I left and I went to do a couple of plays. I did a couple of one-woman shows. And then I wrote my first screenplay, which was The Basket Weaver, which won the Meryl Streep writing competition. Yeah, as, I was a judge on that competition. Yeah. I didn't get your script in competition, though. But yeah. I wrote that because I was really pissed off because they asked me to audition for... It was the age of, you know, Tears of the Sun, 
beast of no nation. It was this idea of what, of this violence and rage mm. and, and just hopelessness on the continent of Africa. And I just, ha- that's not the Africa I know. Do bad things happen in Africa? Yes, they do. But not everybody is in that space of hopelessness. I wanted to create something that was hopeful for my people. Mm. So I wrote The Basket Weaver and I, I said, I'm writing this because this is going to be the last screenplay ever about war in Africa. It is over. Something else, please. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there was that one. And then I just kept writing things and, you know, the universal thing happened. And then I did Bound, which is like the I was going to say, which I see the poster behind you. Yeah. And, and then the Beautiful Ashes is the, is the one woman show that I did. And... And I did Bound, and I did Bound because there was all this conversation that was going on around me, and we had no money. So it was me, it was Tine Carter, it was Aisatu Diallo, and uh, Iabo Kwayana. These are all four women. I'm African. Tine is from Florida. Aisatu's mother is from California. Her father is from Senegal. Um, and Iabo is from the Dominican Republic. Mm. So we're all talking. We're like, look, who has a camera? Iabo is a DP. He said, well, let's just start recording. Two years later, Bound comes out, and uh, it starts to win awards, and I'm a little freaked out. And people are like, why are you freaked out? I was like, because I made the movie for me. Mm. And I did not actually think anybody would want to watch it. <laughs> and then it, you know, and everybody started wanting to see it. And so, uh, and that is one of the legacy programs for me, because mm. building that bridge between Africans and African-Americans is really important to me. And that's one way of, that is just a start of what I consider some of the things that I consider legacy things. Yeah. Yeah. But Pro- isn't that, yeah. that's so beautiful that it's like, because it's the thing that you made that was most for you. Yeah. And then the script that you wrote that was more okay. for you. That's like, those are the two, like your passion shines through and that's what resonates with people. Yeah. I was so mad. Like both of the things I was like, I'm done with this. We gotta go. Let's go do this right now. And then <laughs> that comes out. And, um, they were both, not just, they were not labor of love. I just felt there were things that had to be done. Stories yeah. that had to be told. Yeah. I had no option and no choice in them at all. Because one of the things that I did, um, there's a friend of mine who used to work with me. Her name is Virginia Longmere. And one day she came to me and she said, um, we're talking about stories and destiny and who you're going to be. And she said to me, you know, um, tell your story. Because I'm, I'm very big on ancestors, and I believe that I am because I believe I am because they were, mm-hmm. and so because they were here, they have created a path. And my job is just as Perez, even as an African, is to figure out what my ancestors have laid out for me to do, to be of service, and then to do that. And I know that every single time I have a project and I say, "Okay, ancestors, what do you want?" It becomes something bigger than myself, mm. and then you just become a vessel, and things start to just go through you. They yes. just come through, you'll be like, okay, I'm not writing this. Somebody, this is, this is a story that needs to be told. And I really profoundly believe in that, in the fact that we are here as a continuation of somebody else's dream. And that sometimes it's good to take a moment and sit quietly and reach back and see if that person, whoever's dream it is, and you just say yes to your destiny, and they will start talking to you about mm. what you need to be doing with your life. I really believe that. I think that's beautiful. You know that would we could all stand to do a little bit more of that. Like I was thinking about that the other day. Uh, the looking at a picture, I have a picture on my wall of my great grandmother, and she's yeah. in this ridiculous 
giant hat and very Edwardian dress. And I just think, what would that lady think of me? Yeah. You know, what did she endure? And here I am like, the AC's not good enough right now. It's hot. Like, you know, <laughs> what did she go through? And here I am. Yeah. I was talking yeah. to a friend of mine about that, right? A few minutes ago about, his name is Kumi Rafi. He's um, an African-American. And what he does, is he does this bridge, um, bridge projects where he gets African-Americans to travel to Africa and back and forth to kind of build a bridge. And we were talking about what our generation lived through and what our parents' generation lived through, what mm-hmm. our grandparents' generation lived through. Yeah. Just how it gets better. Yeah. Each generation. And sometimes he said, and I quote, he said, our ancestral memory is too short. Mm. I thought that was beautifully said. Yeah. Sometimes we forget that there's a struggle that was fought and won in some extent for us to get here. And your job is to continue the struggle. Yes. Well, I think we see we see that on many levels right now with from our own family stuff to things like, you know, the women who suffered so that we could have the right to vote in this country. And it's like, and then you have this, uh, I've seen so many younger women just go, I don't know, vote. it's such a, and I'm just like, I mean, this, I haven't heard a lot of that now, but like five or six years ago, I would encounter young women that just like, didn't really care one way or the other. And I'm like, women died they were force fed and starved and so that you could have the right to have your voice and and you're just like "Mm, i'm on instagram i'm bored today i'm not gonna vote i'm like what (laughs) what does it even matter oh and we're talking about it in the context of if we look at it right now what is happening right now and if you look at if you look back at just the 1990 like the red summer riots and what was happening in like tulsa oklahoma Mm -hmm. and you look at what happened in that community what could they do to stop that hate besides run away. Yeah. Then fast forward to 2020, what can we do to stop the hate right now? Vote. Yeah. Vote and, and have more and more conversations. Yeah. Like, I've, but back then they couldn't vote because they were, couldn't even be allowed to do that. They right, right. They couldn't move people in the system who are oppressing. But now yeah. we have, and, and it's not where we want to be by any stretch of the imagination, but it's right. not where we were. That's true. Yeah. That, when it's, yeah, because I get very discouraged sometimes, especially when yeah. friends and family members post really stupid things or ignorant things. And, and I'm just like, oh, God, I've got to explain this to you. And I do, because it's like, well, it's, if that's the least I can freaking do is try to make one more white person understand, you know, and, and it's yet. Hard. It's yeah. really hard. Because you have to remember that I'm also an African in America and I'm not born here. Right. And so sometimes it's so hard for me that I actually wonder how African-Americans do it. Yeah. Like, how have you done this all your life? Yeah. Like, this is, he- this is some heavy it's stuff. Heavy lifting, yeah. It's heavy lifting. Yeah. And I would call some of my friends, and I'd be like, Latoya, you got to explain it. How in the hell? Like, I want to buy a plane ticket and escape, but I have, the, I have the luxury of being able to do that. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that even when I say what I say, I still have respect for the legacy that has come before me and the legacy that continues. And I also understand that I'm a beneficiary of this legacy because my mm. grandparents didn't have to fight the Civil War. But I am benefiting from the struggles of the grandparents of all the African-Americans who came here before, who are here before me. I get that. That's why I made Bound, because I get that. And, and I get that we have to respect that legacy. Mm-hmm. You, just, you, just, you just, come on now. No, I agree 100%. I don't know, right now. If we can, if something that can come out of this current time is 
more respect and understanding for legacy. I think that would be, yeah. you know, huge. huge, you know, where people are finally understanding, you know, maybe we don't need that statue because what is that saying about our legacy? And can we actually listen, listen and, and learn about it instead of just going, well, it's always been standing there. No, it hasn't always been standing there. It's been standing there for maybe two or three generations. And there's a reason why it was put there. And let's learn about that and see if it's still what we want. Cause I- it's interesting because there's a documentary out there. It's on YouTube and it's by the son of great, I think it's great, great or great, great, great grandson of Robert E. Lee. Oh, wow. Yes. And how he is just opposed to all this nonsense. He's opposed to, the, he's just doesn't understand. He's like, I don't understand what this is about. Like, I don't wow. want, the, I, we don't want this. And so you also have to, and, and I think another important thing, and one of the reasons why I believe in sto- being a storyteller is the importance of history. Yes. So I think storytellers not only have to reflect our present or our future, but you have to reflect our past back to us so that we understand that nothing is new in life. We're just repeating cycles. Yes. And that the daughters of the Confederate are the ones who put these things up. The guys didn't, they, they, you know, they went, they're like, you know, well, we went, we fought, we lost. Okay, now we got to figure out how to do this thing. Ain't nobody talking about, let's put up some on statues. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's holding on. I always say that I'm so amazed. That the, that the United States, I'm sorry, now we're talking about America, that the United States of America, these founding forefathers gave this nation a tremendous legacy. And the one thing people want to carry with them forward is the one thing they fought a war to end, racism. Yeah. Made it that. Of everything you were given, you're like, okay, all people are created equal. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Forget that. This thing right here, this civil war, this racism, this, this is where we... What? That's, yeah. It's great. Anyway. We can get off politics. I just think- well, we really could. Well, you know, there's the whole concept of like when your livelihood and the basis of your of your life is requires you to be ignorant of certain facts. You're gonna make sure you stay ignorant of those, no matter yeah. what. And I think right, that's why this moment is particularly so uncomfortable for so many people because yeah. they just cannot. They're struggling to hold on to that ignorance, and yeah. it's like you, you. It's this tidal wave of like truth. <laughs> It's like, you just can't, you, yeah. you got to let it go. It's going to be uncomfortable, but I promise it's going to be better on the other side. Right. Let go. And, I'm, and there's a silver lining to it. We're now seeing it for what it is. Now we can yeah. fix it. You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah, you don't yeah. know what the problem is. You can't fix it. Yeah. So you look at it and say, okay, this is where we are. Okay, we're not where we thought we were. Um, seems like this situation has gotten worse than it's. And so how do we fix it? And then you just, because we're adults, man, we can do this. I mean, we have yeah. people on the moon. Yeah. Come on now. Yeah. We put people on the moon, please. Yeah. This is this be people on the moon who were flown there with people doing hand calculations on paper. <laughs> you cannot tell me that human beings are not incapable of fixing everything that's wrong. You, I, I will, that's something yeah. that I personally refuse to believe. No, I agree. It's again, it just comes back to being willfully ignorant. Yeah, because let me tell you something, Heidi. You can cook food with microwaves. Can you even see microwaves? No, but they can make food. We fly. We get onto big pieces of metal that fly. We can, I can sit here and talk to my mother in Africa. Yeah. At the same, come on. That's what, like, thinking about my great-grandmother and looking at that picture of her, I'm like, would her mind just be blown if I was like, and I get on a plane, and I go over there, and then I go over there, and then I look at a computer in my hand, and I, <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. Well, so as a storyteller, yeah, writing, directing, acting, producing, yeah, what do you like? Are you drawn particularly to any one or the other, or what? 
Is it about control of the complete story or what, what resonates with you? Uh, huh. I, there are certain things it's, I will be, I will say this. It's usually very hard for me to find a project I want to act in mm. because like people are always like, Oh, you should be out there. And I, I always tell them, name me one movie you've seen in the past 10 years that you think I should have done. Mm. There's not one. I can name one that I would have loved to do. What? Jasmine. God, I love that movie. Ah, that's it. Interesting. That's it. That is it. Wow. Of all movies out there. I was like, what is it about Blue Jasmine that, that you think, oh, I could have done this and this? I find the character fascinating and mm. fun. I mean, this woman who's like, she's like, she's, she's drinking, she has no concept of time. She thinks she's the best thing, she sliced cheese, but she's literally the problem. I God, I love that. Maybe, it's, maybe I love how Kate Blanchett played it. But, Possibly. Well, she is also brilliant. But, oh but, but being an unreliable, not an unreliable narrator. Oh, not, totally. But that kind of character, there's so much fun in those characters. So much fun. You're kind of telling this story of how this thing happened and people realize it's not the problem. Like, no, I just, where's my value? God, I love that. I love the script. I love the story. I just, it was just, to me, that felt like it was a, it was a merging of performance with the use. It, it, it worked, it works on stage. It works on screen. Mm. I just, it just felt like just seamless to me. Yeah. I, I just, I loved that character. So, because I've been, I, I get scripts and I read, and if it doesn't hit for me, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, no, you shouldn't. I'm not going to do it. What, like, uh, what was it about Boxed that resonated with you? Boxed, you know, Boxed, I like the story. Boxed, I really wanted to do that. Boxed, like Boxed, I'm, I'm acting in Boxed and I'm doing Glimpse. Now, the difference is I wrote Glimpse. So, I wrote Glimpse. That's why I did Glimpse, because Glimpse is about the, all these uh, black kids that go missing. Mm. So I really wanted to do something about the story of black girls that, you know, yes. go missing and nobody cares. So that's what Glimpse is about. Box is about, uh, um, God, what's his name? He Henry Box Brown. Henry Box Brown, yes. And he um, mailed himself yeah. to freedom. It's, it's astonishing. In fact, one cheer, I believe, is on here with us right now. So. Is she the other one? I think she is. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing that... This it's an astonishing not, story. It's crazy. Well, and that's, that's how this whole thing came about because I'd reached out to Wanjiro about being on and then I saw you listed in the credits of the, and I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. How did, how, wait a minute. And then I, I was just like, I'm okay, I love this. is my girl. Wanjiro just has to separate I'm doing this, come. And I show up because that's my sister. Yeah. Also. So there were two levels is the story and the fact of who's doing it. And that's my sister. And if there's one thing I love to do is I like to support my sisters. Yes. Be they African or not. Is well, that's that's a huge deal, is the, the thing about who you work with, right? Like, you know, you people are like, oh, how do you make it in this town? And it's all confusing. And it's like, well, it isn't. Just show up and do good work. Yeah. And people want to work with you again. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just do be good. Nice yeah, be, do good and be, just be a nice person. Yeah. Just be a nice person. It's so easy, like, sometimes. It's just be, yeah. be good at what you do. And just be, just be courteous and respectful to people. Because that's the thing they remember the most. Before, by the time you finish filming and your film is out, that takes a while. But people yeah. remember, as Maya Angelou said, people remember how, people remember how you treated them. People, remember how you make them feel. There you go. My God, I am 
literally stepping all of my toes today. People remember how you make them feel. Yeah. I believe that. Absolutely. I believe that. You can encourage or you can diminish someone. Yes. So you've worked with a lot of luminaries and you've won some amazing awards. So I wanted to ask what you what you learned. Like what do you what do you what have you taken away from working with people like Taraji? Can I, can I, can I be on a first name basis with her? I don't know if I'm cool enough, but like. Yeah, I'm on a first name basis with her. Miss. <laughs> Miss Henson. Yeah. I just like to call anyone who's older than me, Miss or Mr. Like their last name. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's, it's just me. I know the one reason why t- t- Taraji, Miss, um, Miss Hanson, uh, Miss DuVernay, Miss Ava DuVernay, all these women for me have taught me one fundamental thing and that's the value of quote unquote, I'm just going to say sisterhood. Hmm. How once, how, if you get into the room, no, let's say get into the room, uh, open the door for someone else, but it's mm-hmm. not about opening the door for someone else. It's opening the door, taking a doorstop and just jamming it in. Yeah. And then, then everybody come in. And then once you feel a draft, then you can shut the door. Yeah. But that it's not just about you, that the legacy, you have to create a legacy that outlasts you. And you can only do that by having more, more than just you in the room. And that's one fundamental thing I've learned from those, uh, from whether it is uh, Miss Winfrey, whether it's Miss DuVernay, whether it's Miss uh, Hanson. That's literally one legacy, that one thing that I've learned from three women. Even uh, Miss Knowles, commonly known as Beyonce. All of them, you know, same yeah. thing. It's this constant um, understanding that, especially when it comes to black women, we are, uh, we are each other's sometimes only ally. Mm-hmm. And we have to make sure that your sister is good. Yeah. You just have to do it. Because for so long, there was this conversation of this like scarcity conversation. There's only one seat at the table. And if you get in and you're the one woman, by God, you, you know. And now it's like, well, no, there isn't just one seat at the table. If you get in the door, reach back and make sure you're bringing in yeah. a bunch more people and just make more seats. There you go. Make more seats. And who says we need to have only one table? Exactly. I love that. You know what I mean? Who says, you know, and I feel like there's just a job. This is what I've always thought was interesting. If you look at the life of a child, when they're a baby growing up, their first storyteller was always their mothers. Yeah. Mothers have always been the storytellers. And I'm always surprised that when you go into Hollywood, the women are almost non-existent. These were the first storytellers. These are the keepers of the narratives of a people. It's the women. So to have them absent in such a very visible space, I've always found mm. it problematic. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like the world seems to be askew, kind of off. Yeah. Just tilting a little bit off because I think... The story is through the male gaze or through yeah. the male voice. There's no balance in it. And mm. you need the women, you need the mothers, you need the female voice, you need the yin to the yang. You, it, 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 yeah. Life and even just everything just requires that balance. And I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of people who say, get rid of all men. Because no. to me, that's not different from... That's not balanced of, either. It's yeah. not balance. It's how do we then find the balance so that yeah. there is the narrative that we see that the next generation, the next generation sees is ex- exemplifies the ta- entire totality of the human... Uh, what do you call it? The entire totality of humanity. So that all yeah. the strings represent every single group of people and nobody feels left out. Yeah. Well, you know? it comes back to being curious, you know, to be curious about the stories of people who don't look like you. Yes. And if that's, that shouldn't be that big of an ask. 
of humanity. Oh. You know, to say that little boys aren't curious about little girls' stories is devaluing yeah. little, little boys too. You know, like let's be curious. Let's be curious. Let's make room because I I don't want to live in a world where Michaela's I may destroy you does not exist. Right. So Michaela calls I may destroy you to me is just everything. Well, that's a, so that goes back to what I was saying before about like you see something and you go, oh, I never could have written that. No. Ever in a million years. And it's just luminous. But you know what is interesting about Michaela Cole's um, I May Destroy You? As you watch it, I'm sure there are Brits who see themselves in it, in high interpretation mm. of the situation. But I can also bet you a lot of money, a lot of Africans see themselves in her telling, in how she's told, chosen to tell the story. The way she's chosen to resolve the story to me seemed very African. Really? Very. To me, In what way? Very African. It felt, the last, spoilers, the last episode when she goes through the three different options, uh-huh. she could be mad, and then you know how that option... Well, there was mad. taking, yeah, there was like the taking revenge one, there was the... Uh, yes. The weird, twisted partnering yes. one. But then she did the one where the, it ends up with him taking out the trash. Taking out the past. That's Take right. Out Taking out the past. Yes. I'm going to let, I'm giving him ownership of this and I'm taking it away from myself. Yeah. That to me feels very African where it's, this is your ish. Take it. I'm yeah. going to continue doing me here. I'm not going to jeopardize my own freedom and my own security by beating you to death. I'm not going to try and, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to choose my own way of yeah. moving on without, I mean, there was just, there was something that was lyrical, beautiful to me and very African when I watched it and I said, and I was like, the bikini do good. You know, I just, that's pigeon. I was like, oh, yes. That, oh my God. So you see that, Lovecraft, Lovecraft uh, country, country, all that stuff, us, yeah. get out. Imagine a world where yes. that does not exist. Yes. No. So and that moonlight. Well, yeah. And Lovecraft Country is just blowing my mind on a weekly basis. It, it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant because he he was such a racist, but but a good writer. And it's like, how do you balance the like he was a you know he did stuff, but he was also a terrible human. And and I love that like the layering of you know the othering of people of color that he did in his writing, and how yeah. they take it in the show and make it actual monsters that the that the black people are dealing with yeah. as heroes it's like it's so brilliant because he i mean you know he's rolling in his grave if he's watching this and it's like in your face guy like this is yeah. we're reclaiming this and it's so good and i didn't even realize until just like we were thinking about the other day that the title lovecraft country isn't a celebration of lovecraft it's saying it's an indictment of this country and it's just like oh my god that's brilliant it's amazing, and, and I'm always um, I'm always appreciative when projects like that are given to people, uh, people of color, black people, whatever, women, whoever, and to look at and to give to turn it around and give it a different gaze. Yes, because there were things that were written written at that time. They were their people of their time. I try not to to put a 21st century gaze on mm-hmm. 1915 or whatever the year is. But I love it when, because I've been given a book to read and they said, do something with it because it's so racist. 
about Africa and to just take the book and say, thank you. And now I am, the, because you know there's the African phrase, um, until the land learns how to write the story of the hunt will be written by the hunter. Mm. And so I take that like, okay, I'm the lion. Let me tell you about the hunt. So yes. you get those books and I'm like, oh, that's what the hunter said. Let me tell you about the hunt. Yes. It's a wonderful, because you already have this source material, but it's a wonderful thing to just take it and turn it around and say, well, what's on the other side of that coin? Yes. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite recent examples of that is Circe. The book yeah. that t- looks at the Odyssey from her point of view of like being cast out as, you know, just sea witch. And, and here she is, this amazing complex character that had all these lifetimes of love and pain and had to deal with this jack hole of a guy, you know, and who that, that the rest of the world venerates as a hero. Yeah, because yeah. I think the Greeks do a better job at writing about women in distress. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. exhibiting, like even when you look at, when you look at characters like Lysistrata and you look at Tia mm-hmm. and you look at all this, you know, even Cleopatra, you just look mm-hmm. at all these women and what they were raging with at the time. Yes. You tend to get an understanding of a woman trying to exist in a man's world mm-hmm. and how she fights back against it. I mean, yeah. with her kids. So, you know. Yeah. How disempowered are you that that's, that's, that's the only outlet of rage that you have? And yeah. it's dire. It's dire. But sometimes you want to be heard. And if this is the only way to be heard, then yeah, here we go. Yeah. You know, but I don't think that currently, and maybe we're getting there, uh, we're getting to write better female characters. Yeah. Uh, I think somewhere between Shakespeare now. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere between there. Shakespeare now. Because I love missing Shakespeare, but ooh, Shakespeare was some great men, but some really crazy women. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, it is what it is. We're shifting so, that a bit. We are. What do you think are an essential, essential ingredients for a really good story or a good script? This is what I believe. Your antagonist has to be sympathetic. Yeah. I think that's the key ingredient. If we cannot sympathize with your antagonist. It's a paper tiger. Yeah. We have to be. That's the reason why I think I love Killmonger in Black Panther. Yeah. Your antagonist has got to have some element of being right. Because yes. then that's dealing with humanity. Otherwise, you're dealing with some caricature or some craziness. But you've got to give your, char- your antagonist something that has yeah. the audience conflicted. Like, hold up. Mm. Well, and also that's worth the protagonist's time. Thank you. Like, if you're just a weak, you know, a caricature of a bad guy, it's, it's not worth the, it's uh-huh. to watch this person's journey fighting against you. So what the, the antagonist has also got to want to has got to want something that the audience can relate to. Yeah, she's just got yeah. to. That's what human beings. Whenever you're in conflict with someone, if you're in conflict with an irrational person, chances are you're in the presence of a of a serial killer and really get out of the room. Yeah, but if you're in conflict with a friend or like you know how sometimes you have a friend and the two of you butt heads and you go different ways. That in that essence, in some ways, is now your antagonist to the protagonist in your story. Mm-hmm. But why were you friends? There's something human yeah. in my character. And the audience has got to be able to see that, man. Yeah. It's the, the exchange of gifts. Because yeah. the, the, the antagonist thinks they're the hero of the story. Yeah. And it's just us that decide, no, no, this person is the hero and this person is not the hero. And so 
they need to be as motivated and as pushed by their goals yeah. as the protagonist. I think that's why we love the anti-heroes. Mm-hmm. That's why we loved... Uh, but you love Breaking your Joker. Bad. Yeah, or Breaking Bad, I'm the one who knocks. That's why we love Sopranos. That's why, you know, you love these guys who are... I mean, people love The Godfather. That's a movie about freaking mafia family that's killing people. Yeah. But it's a concept of family. You know, everybody can relate to that. Yeah. You know, so I've always thought that if, my, if, the, if an antagonist makes me... Like, like even if I look at all the stories that I mentioned, A Beautiful Mind, Sixth Sense, Usual Suspect, who's the antagonist? The Usual Suspect, you're sitting with the antagonist the whole time. The whole time. It's the brilliant. The whole time. It's him sitting right yeah. there talking to you. And you love him and he's got this, and we just love this dude. And then you're like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, who's scaring this kid from uh, The Sixth Sense? We know in terms and purposes, this crazy therapist who's trying to talk to him is dead. So yeah. This kid is literally being terrorized by this dead dude. You know, so, you know what I mean? And they're like, they're like right there, a beautiful mind. It was himself. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. You know? This is the beautiful things. This is it out of left field, but we just started watching Cobra Kai, which I was not going to watch because I was like, oh, hell no. Yeah, I'm a it's so It's so great. And it's like... and. <laughs> And the whole thing is that, like, yeah, what if it was, what if we did see the story from the bad guy's point of view? And how, and it changes everything. Yeah. Like, he was this kid dealing with so much crap and, like, trying his best and being corrupted by this bad, you know, sensei and... You know, it's, 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 it's funny. It's just, like, when you see, when you can see the other side of your antagonist, if you can humanize your antagonist, I think yeah. you have a, a really... Beautiful story. Black Swan. Yeah. If you just think of all the greats, who's the antagonist in Moonlight? It's just all these beautiful stories are just human stories. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I talk with my, with my writers about. It's like, yeah. you have to, as hard as this can be, especially if you're writing something from real life, you yeah. have to love your antagonist as a writer sure. because you sure. have to figure out what makes them tick and you have to understand it and sympathize with it. And, you know, it can still be wrong and terrible. Yeah. But we have to understand it on that level. Yeah. And that's fundamentally what I believe. I believe that I want to be able to watch a scene with just your antagonist and be as intrigued as watching. And I don't, I, and there's nothing I hate more than the bad guy. Yeah. Twirling his mustaches. The bad guy walk and the bad guy, you know, I'm the bad guy. I'm going to talk in this weird British accent. And be this weird character. Well, we all know that the British is the, the oh, it's a bad guy. Right? The moment you hear that accent, you'll be like, oh, antagonist. Yep. yep, you're the bad guy. Or yeah. if you're watching a, if you're watching a, a episodic show, yeah. it, so the minute you see a, char- a character actor you vaguely recognize, oh, he did it. They wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> that, Thank you. That guy did it. Right? You're only like, oh, dear God. And you know what I, what I hate, too, sometimes? I hate when I watch, because I was watching this TV show, and I have, um, I just always say bandwidth. I have so little time. Oh, sure. But if I sit down and I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch this show, if I can call out how you're, especially procedurals, yeah. if I can, like now they're doing them like serialized, so it's like an entire 10 episodes. So I was watching this show, because I loved the original, and so they did a remake. And I said, oh my God, this is fantastic. Let me sit down. I got my popcorn and shit. I'm like, okay, let's go. Episode two comes around and I'm like, 
Yeah, his brother did it. And my brother said uh, his brother did it. How do you know? I said, because they've just told me that the brother is the younger one, but this one has all the wealth. So you know he wants his brother. I think the brother did it. So I jumped to the last episode and I went to the end and it's like, the brother did. I said, okay, there you go. So I will, yeah. if I get into a situation like that, I will literally skip everything in between. Yeah. Go to the end and be like, am I right? Yeah, okay. Well, I think also we're getting more sophisticated as, as viewers. Yeah. Because... So you have to work harder to outsmart us so that yeah. we don't know where we're going. And what I watch a lot of foreign shows. Yeah. I'm in love with like, I was in love with South Korea before, before K-pop and TikTok. I mean, I'm in love with South Korean content. Huh. It's so, I don't know what it is about South Korean movies. Cause now we're watching a TV show uh, called The Stranger and Netflix, we watched The Kingdom We've watched, of course, everybody's watched Train to Busan. We've, I mean, I love watching, I love South Korean. I like watching procedurals out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we watch a lot Sweden, of those. Yeah. Sweden, Norway, uh, France, Spain. Uh, I, I haven't found anything yet to watch from Latin America, but I, Netflix used to have these amazing movies from Latin America that I just loved. And it's great to understand pacing different every every yeah. culture has a different way of telling story yeah we try to find shows from italy that we can watch because yeah. we have that whole connection and and then africa shows from africa movies from africa it's just it's amazing when you start to watch even from india when you start to watch content from just across yeah. the world and you begin to see what people are watching how people communicate how people mm. tell their stories how people want to be remembered because that's yeah. really what it is. Legacy. But, but the Scandinavian but, countries are filled with procedurals. They really like their procedurals and their crimes and their moody gray skies. And that shot, you know that, that forest, aerial <laughs> forest shot? Yeah, there's always a forest. All of them. All of them. Did you watch Dark, by the way? No. <gasps> next. Put it on the list. Put it on the list. What, what is next for you? I'm developing a couple of TV shows, so... That's what's taking a lot of my time. And when I'm not doing that, I'm like getting hired to rewrite screenplays. And in the meantime, I'm trying to raise funds. I'm not, I'm trying, I'm raising funds for my next feature. So I'm making contact with a lot of actors and trying to see who fits and uh, finding financiers. So that's really what I am in right now. Like, you know, every storyteller, you are, you're your own hustler. You're, you're hustling for yourself with regards to things that you want to do but then you also have to make sure you have a roof over your head yes and that's not where your agent is hustling for you yes and make sure that you know you both have roofs over your head yes what would you tell your 13 year old self what would she, what would she need uh, to know i would tell her to be to be bolder sooner mm. yeah take risks a lot sooner i, I think I, as women we tend to want to be perfect yeah. And so we let some time pass as opposed to just be bold sooner. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, it's okay. You'll fail forward. Trust me. You'll fail forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I 100% resonate with that. I wish I had started a lot sooner on yeah, what I, sooner. what my dream was instead of going, oh, I, I haven't been, I haven't been pointed to and said, you get to do this now. Like that's. No. And be bold about it. Yeah. 
I remember I was sitting in a room once. This is, I've learned a lot of important lessons. I was sitting in a room with a, a gentleman I worked with at the time. His name was Paul Neinstein, who's been one of my greatest. I've had a lot of great teachers in this industry. I was sitting with Paul Neinstein and Bruce Sharrett in a room and we we're talking about marketing and, uh, and content. And I was trying to pitch the need to make more African-American movies. And so the two of them were talking. This was really the subject matter. And then I just go, I started to get angry then. And I just interrupted them. And I just made this huge speech. And the room went quiet for a minute. And then he said, okay, get me some numbers. And he was done. And when I walked out, Bruce turned to me and said, and that is exactly what you have to do in every room. You always walk in and speak with audacity. Never forget that. I've never forgotten. I love that. Yeah. Speak with audacity. Speak with audacity. Because the reason why you, and I began to learn that a lot more, is the reason why you get hired. It's because you do know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you may have the imposter syndrome, but you will do the due diligence. You will do the homework that's necessary for you to do to fill in the gaps. That's yeah. your job. Fill in your gaps. Yeah. But do the job. You know? I love it. So those are the things I've learned. Wonderful. Inspiring things. Yeah. I appreciate that. You can. I'm telling you, Heidi. Yeah. Uh, one thing I do want to say is one of the things that I've learned also is that fear is your greatest ally. Mm. For me, fear is, if I'm not feeling afraid, I'm not being bold enough. Yeah. The moment you feel that tinge of fear, honey, you're in the right direction. That's now, really good. If, if it's a lion or some kind of creature, yeah. Yeah. that's not what I'm talking about, but you, you, know, you know what I mean. No, that makes sense. Like I'll have that when I'm writing a scene and I'll start to dive into an area and I'm like, oh, wait a minute now. I don't know where this is going. And it's like, well, that's 100% when you just need to lean in and let it go there. Right, yeah. And figure out how to write your way out of it. Write your, exactly, just keep writing. Yeah. Go in and write your way out of it. If things are changing, the, the, the voting body of the Academy, as we all well know now, um, yeah. is changing. But... Yeah you know, you had this voting body that really liked safe white stories and didn't want to be really challenged. Mm. You know, like they want to feel good about, I want to, I want an Oscar winner that makes me feel good. And so that's, you know, you kept getting this stuff. You're like, well, how is that the film everyone's voting for? Yeah. It's interesting. Have you ever listened? Have you ever read when they go the, the in-depth anonymous voter insight? Yes. <laughs> Some of it's so disturbing. <laughs> You're like, wow, you're just straight up racist and you're saying it out loud. Okay, thanks for playing. Oh my God. I remember the guy who was like, because Kwavazine Wallace was yes. like, I'm not going to nominate her because I can't say her name. I was like, oh Jesus. Never mind, she did an incredible job and she was what, nine? God, I think she was six. So, oh, and that's right. She was nine when it came out and when she was yeah. on the red carpet. So she was a child who was literally just a natural talent acting from her. But instinct. Don't get, oh don't, God. don't recognize like, her at all. Like, is this an adult saying this publicly? But you know yeah. what? Hey, let us give us insight. Let's see what you're thinking. So that every time you have somebody, you have to make sure the name can be pronounced. I was like, oh my God, this is. But you know, that's actually one of the things that I'm loving now is there's so many actors with African names that yeah. people are like, you have to say, David, oh, yellow, oh, you can't make that easier. You know, we're not going to make it easier for you, white people. Like, we have to, 
you know, so it's like people are finally starting to realize they have this, like the world is larger than John and Jane and we have to be able to accept and, and, you know, be curious again, be curious, learn how to pronounce someone's damn name. Hold on. My favorite, when they have to say Bon Jung Ho four times. Oh gosh. Yeah. Parasite. I'm like, you got another name by the time you're done. Bon Jung yes. Ho, Bon Jung Ho, Bon Jung Ho, Bon Jung Ho. Yes, four times. That was a great movie. Parasite? It really was. That- Talk about exposing uh, systemic systemic rot and uh, corruption. Yeah, I love that movie. It was really, it's, really good. It's, it's am- and I, what, what I was also grateful for was how it was embraced by the entire academy. Yes. And for me, I felt as a foreigner, as a person who's from a foreign country, that, and I hope it happens again, but I just felt, because I think sometimes people do a disservice, and I could be wrong, you can correct me, to the American audience by assuming that they won't watch foreign content. Because yeah. Netflix is proving people wrong. It is, fine. yeah. Well, we're notorious for not wanting to read subtitles. Yeah, but they're watching all these foreign films. But yeah. I have to dub it. Because the French, you gotta dub the French films in order for them yeah. to play France. But they're watching them. Yeah. Yeah, when it won, I was like, what? I, it was such a testament to the storytelling. Oh, oh my God. But just to win the, the reception of the audience, because there are people who didn't want it to win because it was a foreign film. Right. And then there are people who wanted it to win, not because of it was a foreign film or anything, but it's just it was just good. So yeah. good overcame nationality, and I think that was a good thing. Yeah. Well, and I think there was also other people that didn't want it to win because it made rich people look bad. You know, it was like, wait a minute. But, and here's the million dollar question. The guy who made it, is he poor? Okay. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with he's had enough success and is not So if he's going to do a critical look at his own, his, his, I'm assuming his own demographics, then, you know. Yeah. Well, it goes back to like, how willing are you to sit into the discomfort? Yes. You know, can, can we look at our own selves and go, Oh, that's a mirror. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. But you know, I just, you have to sit in the discomfort and now is a real good time to look in that mirror. We got nothing else to do, honey. <laughs> <laughs> but to sit in discomfort. Oh Lord. Here's the thing, too. I think that sometimes we feel very bad about ourselves because I'm like, I, you're like, I need to be writing, I need to be writing, I need to be writing, I need to be writing. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes what you need to be doing is building up enough energy inside yeah. you so when you do write, it just goes, boom. Yeah. I like to do it like that. That's a really good point. I like to do it like that. I like to be like, oh, I'm just, I like to just be reading. I watch a lot of documentaries. I swim a lot. And a lot of like when I'm working on a screenplay, you can tell I'm working on a screenplay because that's when I do a lot of swimming. Because when I'm in the water, yes. I'm part of the story in my it's head. It's a meditation. Oh I'm, my God. A, I'm a big swimmer. Best. It's the best. Yeah, I'm a big and, swimmer too. You know, you could drown if you're not paying attention. But, you know, I am doing all that. Then I come back and I just continue writing. But I have learned to go easy on myself. And I think that's the reason why I don't get super stressed. Let me tell you. Somebody living with you is the truest test. Yes. Because <laughs> they don't care. They need something they need in that moment. Nobody's scared. They'd be like, hey, when are we having dinner? And you're like, dude, I'm in the middle of a scene. Yeah. Okay, but when are we having dinner? 
Yeah. It's like, I've got people crying right here on this page. The things are happening that are massive. And you want to know about dinner? Yeah. So that midnight to 4 a.m. ego. Yeah. They, they smash that. And you need that. You need that. Sometimes I yeah. need that for somebody to remind you it's not that deep, babe. Yeah. It's not that deep. We're not, we're not curing cancer. We're just yeah. writing movies. We still need to eat. So yeah. get your ass out of there. And let's go figure out what we're going to eat. Yes. Because it drops you back down. Boom. Yeah, you thought you were like, and then Kathy, and you're like, feeding. And you're in there, and you're like, and you're emoting, and you're doing all this stuff, and you're crying, and you're like, but I don't love you. And stop. Babe, stop it. I can hear you from the kitchen. You know? So you <laughs> Oh, God. I, my dad called me once when I was in the middle of writing one of those scenes. Yeah. And I was pulling from a recent really hard breakup to do it. And I was crying and I'm writing and I'm crying. And he calls me, he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, I was just thinking about that breakup. And he's like, why? That was so long ago. Why is that still making you sad? And I'm like, no, dad, I'm using it for the art. And he was like, I do not understand what you do. I don't get it. We get so self-involved, I tell you something. <laughs> That's why I love just when people slap you into reality, when somebody, when a, when a kid poops in the diaper and you got to take care of that. Yeah. When life happens around you. Yeah. And it kind of centers you back to, without life, there's no writing. That's right. So live it. Then you can have actually something to talk about. So yes. it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> Next time on Hearthside Salons, it's usual for a writer to have another gig. Writer Meg Gifford is not usual in that her other gig is chemistry professor. She's skilled at understanding how things come together and what causes reactions. She's worked with legendary UCLA screenwriting professor Lou Hunter on his new book. We'll talk about the art and science of screenwriting. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.